long passage. Uh, get your Bible out or your app out or whatever it is. Just put it on airplane mode so you don't disturb anybody around you. But uh, read God's Word together with us. John 1, verses, um, 7, verses 1 through 52. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning for he has never, when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I've come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, you will not find me, and, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd doesn't know. The law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to him, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have you have your words for us today from this passage. Thank you that you declare that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, Lord, that you discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. God, I pray that you would do that with your word, that your word would pierce us, that your word would reveal you to us. God, I pray that you enable all of us to hear. May we not be distracted by the cold and the road noise and whatever else around us and kids. Lord, may, may we focus on you, receive from you. Lord, rejoice in you. And God, enable me to preach. Would you give us the gift of your spirit, both to preach and to hear? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last year we'd originally planned to preach through 1 Corinthians, but back in the beginning of the pandemic, Aaron and I were seeking the Lord and praying and we felt really led to change our spiritual diet of the Word on Sunday mornings what to, to what we're doing now in John because we thought that this is what our church needs to eat the most. Now, we landed on the Gospel of John because we're, we're in a time of upheaval, not just in our world, but in the church around us. There's lots of division all around. It's in the most divisive time I can recall. There's all kinds of divisions, all kinds of lines. People respond in a whole variety of ways. Some are giving up. Some are becoming like the world. Some are giving in. Some are walking away. Some are discouraged. Some remain faithful. And these are times like the conditions that they faced in the early church when they were in the time of Revelation when John was writing to those seven churches. And in Revelation, what John thought that each of those churches, what God thought that each of those churches, all of the people in those churches, enduring a wide variety of trials and temptations, what they needed to see, what the answer was, was Jesus. And that's what we're seeing here continuing today, that what our focus needs to be on is Christ and Christ alone. The church needed to see Jesus in all of his aspects, and he is where our focus needs to be. More than anything else, more than any cause, any problem, any solution, Jesus is what we need to focus on most because, as Paul said, it's in, in him we live and move and have our being. We've been going through the Gospel of John. I, I know I've been challenged greatly personally because it's really confronted me with, do I really believe in Jesus for who he says he is? Do I, do I look to Jesus? Do I long for Jesus? Do I see him as the very revelation of God for us? Do I see that he is all that I need? In the last few weeks, that we've been challenged by, with thoughts of Jesus being our bread. And I've been personally challenged. Am I really living as if he's my bread? As if he's what I need to eat? 
I can easily put my trust, my hope in things other than Jesus. And week after week, I found that my heart has been redirected to put my hope back in Jesus because so often we make too little of Jesus. More often we make more of other things or other people to the point that our hope subtly can shift. You ever have that happen where, you're, where you, you don't even realize it, but your, your hope is in people and then people disappoint you? Your hope's in things and things don't pan out or they do pan out as a pandemic. You, you know, what, when, when those things happen, we can subtly make less of Jesus and more of other things. And what we make of Jesus, it, it makes all the difference. And, and that's what John is trying to get his readers to see, that what we make of Jesus, it makes all the difference. And, and there are a variety of people who don't know what to make of Jesus in this passage. There's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is, what, what to do with him, what, what to make of him. And I think, think what John wants us to see is that what we make of Jesus, it, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. All kinds of people in this passage, they don't know what to do with them. And there's two questions at the center of this passage. And, and, and it seems to be that John is answering the question of who is Jesus to you? And then the next question that, that he's going to address is why should I come to him? Who is Jesus to you? And that's a question for us this morning as well. Who is Jesus to you? Not just who, do you, who you say you believe he is, but who is he to you? And then why should you come to him? And do you come to him? Look, look down in, in your Bible. There's, there's, there's a variety of responses throughout the passage. And it, and it really begins with Jesus' brothers. These are Jesus' younger brothers. He was living in Capernaum at the time. He had come back from feeding the 5,000 probably about six months earlier back to his home in Capernaum. That's where they found him teaching in the temple. So his brothers, they knew of his ministry. They had heard of all of his miracles. They'd seen all the wondrous works he had done. They had lived with him. I can't even imagine that, living with Jesus, seeing him in all of his perfection, seeing him never making any mistakes, never sinning, never treating people wrongly, always loving God, always loving others. His brothers saw those things. They saw all the miracles. They saw the works that he did in Galilee. And they, they wondered, though, why is he keeping up to Galilee? And they were encouraging him in this passage here, but with the wrong motives. And they were asking him, Jesus, why don't you, instead of being private and just staying around Galilee and going throughout this area, why don't you go to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is where they're really going to see you, acknowledge you as the Messiah. Because they wanted him to be seen as the earthly ruler, the earthly Messiah. They probably had some ideas of earthly deliverance. We've already seen that in the people. And what's really shocking that John writes to us, look down your Bibles, John, what John says of his brothers in verse 5. He says, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's shocking that not even his brothers really believed. It doesn't mean that they didn't believe he might have been an earthly Messiah because they're actually asking him to go and reveal who he is by, by doing miracles in public in Jerusalem. But they have the wrong motives. I was thinking about that, how shocking and dramatic that really is, is that they lived with Jesus. They saw him continually. They thought they knew him. They knew a lot about him. They'd seen a lot of the things that he'd done. 
They, they were exposed to his works. They were exposed to his teachings. They were surrounded by it, and yet they really didn't believe in him as the spiritual Messiah that he came to be. Begs the question for us today, we know a lot about Jesus. We spent time around the church and Christians. The question is, do you, do you really believe him to be your Messiah? Do you see him for who he says he is or who you think he should be? One way to tell how you react is, is how you react when he doesn't do what you want him to do. So we see unbelief immediately from his brothers who knew him closely. And then we see all kinds of mixed responses from the people in verses 11 and 13. Some, some thought he was a good man. And, and they said, you know, well, others thought, well, maybe he's leading people astray. He's a charlatan. He's a deceiver. Verses 15 you can see that the Jews were amazed at his teaching. He was, he was such an incredible teacher, and they were amazed. How, how did he get to be such a great teacher? He doesn't seem to be educated, and yet he is, he is an amazing teacher. Other people thought he was crazy. In verse 20, the crowd said, you've got a demon. I don't think they literally meant he was demon-possessed, but he was mad. He was nuts. We might say you know, today that, like, man, you, what, what are you on, drugs? Are you crazy? Are you nuts? Who's seeking to kill you? Verses 30 and 32, the Jewish leaders, they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. There was all kinds of mixed responses to Jesus, and they were all had different responses to who Jesus is to them. The authorities had heard about the commotion that had been caused, and people were, were thinking this might be the Christ. And so in verse 31, we see that despite those who were against him, Despite their attempts to arrest him, Jesus, he was successful in drawing people to himself. And, and some believed. In verse 31, it says, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? But there were mixed responses all over the place. Verse 43 says, there was a division amongst them. Some of them wanted to arrest him. No one laid hands on him. 45 and 46, we see the temple officers. They were torn. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. They didn't know what to make of him. And this is no different than today. People have all kinds of mixed responses. They don't know what to do with Jesus. They don't know what to make of him. And, and, and the critical question that John is wanting his readers to answer is, what will you do with Jesus? Who do you say he is? Who is Jesus to you? You see, you can't be ambivalent about Jesus. Not then, not now. He confronts all our sensibilities. John's trying to get the reader to confront who is Jesus to you. Jesus came. It tells us some of the context. He came into the temple in the middle of a feast time. He was teaching with power. He was the word of God incarnate come to them. And yet they didn't understand how he knew God's word when in fact he was the word. He was the word incarnate, and they didn't know him. They should have recognized him. They wondered where he got his teaching, so they said, well, you know, where does he get this authority? Where does he get this teaching? And the practice of the rabbis in that day was to cite the authority or source for their teaching. So Jesus, in verses 16 and 18, he cites the authority for his teachings, and he says, his teachings don't come from any mere man. Jesus let him know that his teaching was from God, the one who sent him, and Jesus was seeking God's glory. And there was no falsehood in his teaching. He is true. He is the truth. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? 
He says, if you, if you really know God's will and you really want to do God's will, then you're going to see that my teaching is from God and my teaching is true and I am the truth. Verse 27 and 29, Jesus shows he's revealed, reveals he was sent by God. They thought they knew where he came from because they thought that the Messiah would have unknown origins, but they didn't know where Jesus was really from, that he really was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He really was of the line in, in lineage, the lineage of David. And, and so John is trying to get the reader to answer that question. Who do you see Jesus to be? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the very truth of God to you? Do you seek to do his will? And can you affirm in your own life that he's true? Are his words true to you? Do you accept his teaching as personally authoritative? The second question that John addresses in this passage is why should we come to him? We skip something very early on in the passage. I don't know if you noticed it or not. We skip something really important early on. Anybody catch it? You can shout out. What, what, what do we skip early on? We need to be good readers of the word. We, he, we skip the context. We skip the context of, of the passage on purpose. He, John, he is very purposeful. Whenever John is writing, he intentionally, deliberately gives us context. And that context is meant to inform how we read the passage. And, and John tells us in verse 2, look back in your Bibles. And verse 2 says, now the feast, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now it's not talking about a phone booth. It's not talking about Doctor Who going to in a weird booth there and traveling the world. This is the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. It was a feast of booths or tabernacles or or tents. They would they would go and they would they would build these tents wherever they were. And so if they could make it to Jerusalem, which every male above a certain age was required to go to Jerusalem for this feast. And so, so most of the country would go. It was the most popular feast in all of Israel every year. It was a, a wonderful party time. Unlike some of the other feasts, there were times of, of mourning or sinful atonement for sins. This was a time of celebration. And then the people, they were called to, to construct these temporary structures, these booths, these tabernacles, these, these kind of makeshift tents out of, out of reeds and and brush and leaves and then they had the sides they would typically put in wrap in fabric and so they would the whole family would get together and they would tabernacle and what they were celebrating was that in the wilderness god tabernacled amongst them god made his presence amongst them he he dwelled in a tent in their presence while they were in tents and so they celebrated the fact that when they were traveling when they were living in tents god he came down and he put his presence in a tent there's a time to remember how God had provided food for them, how God had provided water for them. And there was this uh, particular illustration that they would use, which we're going to get to in a minute, that how God provided water from the rock. He provided water for the rock, from the rock in a parched and barren land. And, and when they were, they were complaining that they came to the desert, they were dying of thirst, and, and, and God told Moses, strike the rock, and, and out of it will flow, speak to the rock, and water will flow from it. And so Moses did that, and, and the water flowed from the rock. And they remembered in this, this Feast of Tabernacles how God tabernacled with his people. His presence went with them, caring for them, providing for them, protecting them, enabling them. So during this feast, they celebrated God's provision, his harvest. It was, it was a little bit like Thanksgiving and a in a family camp out, a jamboree, a, a something like a fall festival where there was all kinds of cooking and people came together and everywhere you looked, there was tents set up 
families would get together and live for a whole week in these tents. And they would celebrate, and there would be rejoicing and music. And every day, they would go to the temple together, and, and they would see this, this ritual in the temple. Jesus didn't go right at the outset, but he went in the middle of the feast time. We see that he stirred things up. He was with his teaching, and their hearts were exposed. They, they were bothered by his words. They were proud of the law of Moses, but he confronted them. If, you, if you're really proud of the law of Moses, you, you, don't, you don't even keep it yourself. They're provoked by him. He corrects them for judging wrongly. He explains how they were seeking to make a, a boy or a child well by giving him circumcision on the Sabbath, and yet he was seeking to make a whole man well on the Sabbath. And so they shouldn't be judging him. Their hypocrisy was revealed. They can't lay their hands on him, though, and because it's not yet his time to die. But then look down in verse 37. He, he reappears. They, they try to put their hands on him. They try to arrest him. And he, we see he goes away. He's not arrested. They don't have an explanation for it, but it's not his time. But look down in verse 37. There's, there's a dramatic moment here that's important. And you, you need to know the context of the feast in order for you to understand it. Verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, now, every day, first thing in the morning, the beginning of each feast day, the priest, he would walk with this, this golden, uh, I can't even, I don't even know what the name of it is, but this, this golden container to, to carry water, and they would, they would dip the container in the water of the pool of Siloam where Jesus had healed the man fully. And it was near the water gate. And so he would go, and they would dip this golden container, and they would carry water, and the whole crowd would follow him, and they'd all be singing from the Psalms. They'd all be singing together. And he'd draw this, and they'd be praying for water, and they'd be thanking God for his provision of water. So every morning, and they'd be reciting Isaiah, where Isaiah had prophesied. When, when Isaiah said in Isaiah 12, 3, he says, With joy you will draw water out from the wells of salvation. And so they would celebrate every morning. And it was signified that the water the children of Israel drank from in the wilderness, that when God saved them was by supplying water from that rock. It was a picture of God's ultimate salvation. They're remembering that God is the one who quenches their thirst, praying for him to continue to supply water. And so they would, they would follow the priest in this procession back to the temple, and they, they, would, they would yell for him to hold the water up high. And so he would hold the water up high, and they would say, pour it out, and he would pour it out. And it was this very dramatic thing. And as they were pouring it out, they would sing from the Psalms songs of blessing. And then the water would go into this container and then go to the base of the altar. And they were remembering that God is the one who quenches their thirst. And, and to us, that doesn't sound very significant, but they were living in a very arid country. They were living in a dry land. And they were remembering that unless God gives them water, they have no life. They were utterly dependent on God to supply their water for the crops, for their life. They had literally thirsted in the desert, and God supplied their water. He was their water. And now Jesus stands up, it says on the, on the last day of the feast, they've been doing this ceremony every day for seven days. And, and after that time where the priest is pouring the water in, there was typically a hush that would fall over the whole congregation. The whole city was gathered together witnessing this. And so in this context, when everything's silent, the water's been poured out, 
They're praying for God to continue to give water. Then Jesus stands up. I can imagine how shocked everybody was because the only person standing was likely the priest. And so Jesus stands up and he says in a loud voice, he cried out. I can imagine he might have been pointed to that water. After they had prayed, God, give us water. Lord, we're dry, we're barren, we need your water. Jesus stands up and he cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And those words must have been jarring and shocking. Because Jesus was declaring that he is the water of God. He's the one who supplies life. He's the one who gives water in the wilderness. And then he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he was saying that in fulfillment of, of Ezekiel. And it gives us this wonderful picture of how water would flow from the temple of God. And it would water and refresh the land and heal God's people. And John writes, he says, now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were yet to, re were to receive. The Apostle Paul, he understood that connection. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Talking about they were under the pillar of the cloud by day. And he says they passed through the sea when God led them out of, out of Egypt through the Exodus. And he says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. This is a wonderful reflection really on what Jesus has done. He says, all drank the same spiritual drink. Now look in... Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Jesus is the spiritual drink that the people need. When they drank from the rock that was struck for the people, it was pointing forward to the ultimate rock, who would be struck for us. So that spiritual water would flow. So that they might drink of him through believing on him and receive the spirit. Isaiah had prophesied of this day. He said in Isaiah 58, 11, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. What vivid, wonderful imagery. When we are in scorched places, when our bones are weak, He satisfies our desire. He makes our bones strong. And we'll be like a watered garden. That's a, that's a picture of growth, of, of God bringing sanctification, God bringing growth in our lives. He waters like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And Jesus says, I am this water in the midst of the temple on the great day of the feast. He says, I actually am the fulfillment of this water ritual. I'm the fulfillment of all that you celebrate in this Feast of Tabernacles. I am the one standing in this temple who am God's presence. He's tabernacled amongst his people. He's living water where water is scarce. The Spirit is what they really need to be refreshed by, not any temporary water. And this is a picture of flowing, abundant water, flowing, abundant refreshment 
for people living in a parched land where water is scarce. He promises rivers of water, not just one river. Think about that. It's living water as well. It's, it's, not, it's not dead water. It's, it's ever-living water and water that gives life. Because the Spirit brings life and fruitfulness to a dry and barren world. That's what the people need. Ever-flowing, abundant river of life refreshing our souls. How about you today? Are you thirsty? Are you dry? Do your bones need strengthening? You, you need to come to this river of living water that Jesus gives. When Jesus stood at that time, the Spirit had not yet been fully given. Calvary was necessary for Pentecost. And yet now that Jesus has come, he's died, he has, he has purified us so that, you see, the Holy Spirit can't dwell in impure vessels. The, God cannot put his presence, his presence cannot be where there is sin. And so, so when Jesus came, he died for our sins, he rose again, proving his sacrifice was acceptable so that all of us who place our faith in him can be made clean so that we can become a dwelling place for the Spirit. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles that John's writing of, it pointed forward to a time when God's presence would dwell with the people permanently. Jesus came during this middle of this feast. He pointed the way to himself as the true tabernacle. And, and this is really fulfilling what John wrote about earlier in John 1.14 when he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that word for dwelt is, He made his tent. He tabernacled. Oh, and now he comes into the tent, into the temple. He says, I am. I am the tabernacle. I'm the one who gives living water. I am the rock. I'm the one who gives the spirit. I'm the one who gives the presence of God. The presence of God will no longer be limited. He will give it to all who believe. Later in John 14, John, Jesus told his disciples, he says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of the truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Do you realize this is what Jesus was talking about on that day? That you can have his very spirit within you. Not in a limited or partial way. So often I look for refreshment in so many other places. I look for strength in other places. I look for being watered. I look for, for growth in other places. And I get disappointed and discouraged. And yet, we need to look to him who gives us living water. God's presence wasn't fully manifest in the, wa in the wilderness. His presence wasn't, presence wasn't fully manifested in the physical temple that replaced it. But here, on this day, Jesus manifests God's presence in total the day when he would send his full presence amongst his people. No longer dwelling in a tent where people can come near, not come near, but encounter his presence directly. Jesus gives God's people his spirit, not partially, but overflowing like a river. The Apostle Paul wrote about that saying in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you were God's temple, that God's spirit dwells within you? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Let me ask you that. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells within you? Are you living that way? Are you relying on the spirit? Are you looking to him? 
Are you asking Jesus for more of the Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul continued to write, says, Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You have God's very Spirit within you. The whole church, he tells us in, in Ephesians 2, is a, is a dwelling place that, that the whole church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. A dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Will you come to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus? And not just once, but continually. Will you come to the source of living water? Day by day, hour by hour, will you come to the only place that gives you water? And will you renounce going to other places, broken cisterns that do not satisfy? The great philosopher Eric Clapton, he, he once sang a song called Till Your Well Runs Dry. He said, you never miss your water till your well runs dry. So tell me, tell me what you're going to do when your well runs dry. What you're going to do when your well runs dry? When your well runs dry, I'd like to know what you're going to do when your well runs dry. Whatever well you're looking to, whatever well you're hoping, what do you do when your well runs dry? Will you come to him and drink? Will you receive his life-giving spirit? The timing for us this week in, in preaching on the Feast of Tabernacles is a happy coincidence. It's actually, we're right in the middle right now of the Feast of Tabernacles. Today is the middle. So it started Friday, so this would be the considered the third day. This might have been the day that Jesus came to the tabernacle to, to teach, I mean to the t uh, temple to teach. But as Christians, we, we no longer just celebrate that God went with his people in the desert and he put his, his presence in the temple temporarily. We celebrate that in this dry and barren world, this desert that we all live in, Jesus has come. And he's offered up his own life in our place. He's made us holy so that we can be a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit for all who've trusted in him and been born again. He fully gives the Spirit, not in part, but in full. So now His presence tabernacles, lives, dwells among us permanently. Here's the good news. We're never alone. It doesn't matter who leaves you. You're never alone. It doesn't matter if you don't have any friends. You're never alone. I'm not saying that they aren't important, by the way. We have the Spirit. Who could want anything more? Will you come to him? Will you seek him? Will you ask him for more?